Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Buck Sanders and Jason Staples. Day after Carolina loses at home to Virginia 20-14. to And Buck, I'll start with you. I guess we'll start from back to front. Last play of the game, Brandon Harris drops back. Has some pressure, but a missed call that the folks in Keenan Stadium certain didn't did not like. I would figure the folks on television who saw multiple replays did not like it. Your take on that whole end sequence there? Well, to be fair, obviously there's no guarantee that UNC is going to score there, even if they get the call. So, yeah, that's an unknown. But the other problem with that is that if they miss that call, if they don't make that call, what were they watching on that play? Brandon Harris is standing back there by himself. The Clearly, the UVA defender got a hold of his face mask. His head turns 90 degrees in the direction of which it's get tugged and downward at the same time. And then he just falls down. And no call. So if they weren't watching that, what were they watching? My opinion is that, and uh, Fedora made some comments at the press conference saying that they thought he was a runner. Well, that doesn't infect anything. <laughs> if the referee said, well, he was a runner on that play, well, so what? You know, it, it, if the ball carrier gets his face mask tugged, it's still a face mask penalty, right? And the other thing was they didn't think that a UVA player grabbed his face mask. Well, how they could have thought that and have been watching the play is past me. Well, what's remarkable to me, what's remarkable to me is how he didn't grab the face mask, but the head turned like that. I mean, that's a great acting job by Brandon Harris. Absolutely. And, and not only did he uh, turn his head vertically, he turned it downward too. So uh, he was really nuanced on that fake there, but and I need to train yeah, my I mean, players to be able to do that stuff. Yeah. The, <laughs> you know, for them to have played as hard as they did and they're out there, they're kids, they're competitors, they're doing their best they can to win the game and for the refs to take it out of their hand. And Jason, I think brought this up when we were talking off there, it was Jeff Flanagan's ACC crew. And Flanagan, baby. Mistaken, I think that's the same crew that called the Miami Duke game a couple of years ago. It is. It's also the, like, it's also the crew that Florida state I know has asked the ACC never allow this crew to, to officiate one of our games again. And they're the crew that officiated this year's Florida state Miami game that, uh, that blew about four calls that uh, I know has that community very much riled up. It's also the crew that moved the football when uh in a wake forest fsu game years ago they when they're measuring they're moving the ball forward it, it was caught on t- you can find you can see this on youtube it's unreal some of the stuff this crew has pulled off over the years well it sort of makes you long for the days of ron cherry but oh i'll, but, I'll take ron cherry over over flanagan's crew any day I, yeah I, I will too and, and what i saw what i thought was interesting is that they will not call one where they're standing right at it but the back judge 
would come in from 30 yards downfield and throw flags near the line of scrimmage. But Buck, you know, it's a surprise or folks are surprised they missed that call. They missed that. They miss holding calls all day. They called one on Virginia you know, when they scored well, down the in zone. Well, that 81 yarder, what's funny about that in a way, if anything could be funny, is that uh, just a few plays you know, last time or a few times before when North Carolina had possession, they called Roscoe Johnson for that same exact block that uh, the Virginia defender was putting on Roscoe Johnson while they made that 81-yard run. Now, that they, they probably should have got the guy anyway, but uh, come on. I mean, if you look at those two plays, in one play, Roscoe Johnson is doing the blocking. He gets called. Next play, he's being blocked in the exact same way as when he got called for it, and it's an 81-yard touchdown. So, yeah, I'm, I know it's a little bit – we sound like homers when we talk about stuff like this, but when you know, it's that Jeff last Flanagan's play. Crew, when, when it's Jeff Flanagan's crew, there's, there's room for any sort of complaints. I'm telling you. Yeah, that, uh, I, well, that, I, I, I tend to – you make a point, Jason, there about it happening all over the league and with Florida State. But, you know, until I heard you explain those, I'm thinking Carolina's just not going to get any 50 50 calls or any calls at all. Not from, from that crew. Yeah, from the ACC that, that period. Wasn't even a 50 50 call, though. I no, mean, yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not clear about it. It's not just ACC crews. I'm telling you, it's Flanagan's crew specifically. When you see Flanagan's crew, you're going to see some shenanigans happening in that game. There, so you, you know how, like in the NBA, there there are a few crews that over the years have had a reputation of, oh, okay, the NBA is sending the fixers in. That those guys are going to going to make sure that that you know X team doesn't run away with it, and that the the, the series goes another game, or that the right team wins. Well, Flanagan's crew, as far as I'm concerned, is kind of like that for the ACC, man. Even if even if that's not what's happening, dang, if it doesn't look like it half the time when they're on the field, that that it's there. That crew over and over and over again is the one that shenanigans happen when they officiate games. And I don't, you have to think it's incompetence, but wow, yeah, but it's it's yeah. convenient incompetent. <laughs> There's it's awfully in, inconvenient. Or awfully convenient incompetence, quite a bit. But uh, indeed, before we move on, oh, uh, you, but, you, you, you're giving me the before we move on. So tell me, go yeah. on, Buck. Well, I wanted to get this point out um, in case we forgot it. But at the uh, HL show yesterday, and I think Ron Stutz is getting very tired of you guys predicting UNC to lose. I think <laughs> I think he's getting worn out with that. But if I'm not mistaken, Jason Staples picked the final score twenty to fourteen. Twenty to seventeen, I believe. I I, I missed this one, guys. Oh, okay. If I remember uh, right, it was twenty to seventeen. I, I, I so I, I was off on this game. Very I'm gonna have to go back and look at look at it but uh and, and then and barnes came behind you and said 21 to 17 or something like that moved the needle by a point but good call on that low scoring game just like you predicted and the outcome like you predicted and the whole nine yards so good call well buck i picked i predicted carolina to win 
because I thought the you defense did, and I was I, very pleased with you too. But yeah, but, but didn't work you out didn't that way. You didn't know that Flanagan's crew was officiating beforehand, though. <laughs> exactly right. I did think the defense would make a play to set up a win or or create the win, and they did there at the end. Um, one call that they did not miss is MJ Stewart was two feet out of bounds and never reestablished. And I don't, Jason, the rule there, let me ask you this. It, it, the rule there, when MJ goes out of bounds there and the ball's flying out, he has to reestablish himself. Can he be the first person to touch it there? Or is that not apply in that situation? Because there was he, a lot of fans that didn't understand that. He can, had he, he been in bounds, it'd have been fine. Right. He can, it's just like basketball in that, where he can, if he gets his feet in bounds first and reestablishes himself in bounds first and then touches it, he can be the first person to touch it. But I, I think the problem on that play was he had a foot out of bounds with the ball in his hands. That was that was the problem. But if he gets if he reestablishes himself, if he jumps in bounds and then touches it before or, or right after his feet touch the ground in bounds, he's good to go. Yeah. Well, to be honest, and I don't think it was two feet, but you know, uh, it was close. I think. Yeah, it was close. That actually was the proper call. I'll, I'll, I, you know, give give the uh, give Flanagan's crew credit where they stumble into one. Yeah, and I, when Stewart threw the ball towards the end zone, I thought for sure a flag was coming out on that one. That would have been some more icing on that cake. Let's talk about positives. And Jason, explain to me or explain to us how. Carolina can struggle so mightily with the run game, and then Michael Carter comes out on really consecutive plays and bust runs that Carolina hadn't seen all year. Bronco Mendenhall said, and rightfully so, I think, and out of nowhere they break two big runs. What did Carolina do differently? What did you see differently there? Deems May said again, I'll go back to him, and you know, folks either like him or hate him, but he said Carolina's offensive line appeared to block every other play. Huh. And, uh, you know, there's some validity to that, it, it appears. But what did Carolina do on those plays to get Carter free? I'm not exactly sure because I haven't had a chance to go back and, and break it down. I'm actually going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to use those uh, runs for a video this week, at least one video on them. But, yeah, that uh, I, I, from the box, it looked to me like they identified something in how – Virginia was overflowing to the play side and they they made they they made a little tweak to the to the blocking assignments and were able to open up that that cutback lane for for the back and that that you know, he hit it just perfect and and the thing is they've got to continue getting that guy the ball more often I mean I like Jordan Brown a lot and he's the more complete back but the guy that that has really made the big plays more often than not has been Carter. You know, I, I, the reason I think that 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 Brown has played more for the most part has been he again he's the more complete back, he's more reliable in in, in uh, pass protection, and especially Brown catches the football really well. You, you've seen every time they've tried to throw it to Carter, he's he's struggled to catch it. But at some point you you got to find ways to get the ball in Carter's hands because he, he does make big plays more frequently. But I do think that they that – they, you notice that happened right after they came out of the half, the first big one. I think they, they identified something in the UVA front and how they were overflowing to the, to the front side and were able to, to basically hit that with that little, with that little counter because it was the same play each time. 
So I, I think they saw something. I need to go back and take a look to be sure what they saw. But you got to give credit to the to the Carolina coaching staff on that because they, they I I think they clearly identified something. And were able to hit it for a couple for a couple scores basically. Look forward to those breakdowns. They're always fun to watch for me. I know a lot of people enjoy them. But Brandon Harris, his stats are awful to be frank, and they got to be better for Carolina to have a chance to win. But I can't blame him. At least to me, and I'd love to hear y'all's opinion, on at least two of those interceptions, he's got to get much, much more help than that. Buck, your take on Harris's performance and why he played and Chasserat didn't, we'll hear more, I'm sure, or maybe not. But the fact of the matter, Harris did play and uh, Caroline ended up losing anyway. Your take on Harris? Well, one thing that I said in my column today is that all year long I've been wondering why North Carolina hasn't attempted to throw the ball deep very often. And I I think we kind of learned why in this game is they can't keep a quarterback clean long enough for him to launch a deep ball. Now, on, on one of those passes, clearly Harris threw it into double coverage, just a bad throw, bad decision. But on the other two, it's hard to throw off your front foot if you've got a guy planted in your chest, <laughs> which is what happened on those throws. Um, yeah, I, I, now, I will say on the, on the second one, so I've got my notes here from watching from the box. On the, sec- on the first one, it was, it was Ratliff Williams' fault for not running through the football and competing for it. He, he turned to catch it when he should have just run for it. It was not a good throw, but but that's that's on the receiver. Second one, you're right, he got hit, but what but, but in my notes, I'm going he made the wrong read because he had the top side slot wide open on a post and he threw again to Ratliff Williams. He locked into his guy. If he'd have thrown to uh to 85 there, then uh that being Roscoe Johnson if he'd have thrown to uh, to to Johnson in the slot, he had leverage and that probably scores. And he had it early, but he he missed the read, and then got hit and didn't get help from the receivers. So split the blame there. But primarily for me, it's on the read. And then on the third one, well, yeah, you, you're not going to throw when you're on your back, right? Yeah, and and the other thing is, you know, it's it's not just one problem, you know. Uh, <laughs> No, it's you know, not. there's, there's, there's pass protection issues and you got a couple of young guys back there. Neither one of them are, you know, like big guys. I mean, you got guys that are like 190 pounds trying to block a, you know, 230, 240 pound linebacker coming through there. And you know, the, the offensive line, I don't know if it's miscommunication or what's going on there, but you know, they're missing blocks. Plus, you know, every defense knows by now that they're not going to have to worry about one of the North Carolina quarterbacks beating them with their arm. They can load the box every single time. They can blitz to their heart's content because they know pretty well that North Carolina's quarterbacks are not going to make them pay a price for that. And then I think probably – at least as big as either of those problems 
they have got a extremely depleted wide receiving core. Some of the guys learning new positions. As you know, Jason, I think, may have said um, CHL show. Now you got backups going out. You know, not only are the starters gone, but now we're losing backups. And, and these guys, I'm sure they're trying as hard as they can, but it, it's not like you got Ryan Switzer out there, you know, creating separation and getting missed. You know, so I think that combination of problems combined with uh, Harris's inexperience in this offense and Surratt's inexperience, then I think you've got a problem that's way too difficult and complicated to resolve during the course of a season. Good point there. Last point, Jason. I thought the best ball Harris threw was the deep one to Ratliff Williams there at the end. And again, I didn't think Ratliff Williams ran through the route and – you know, he could have laid out there. That was right in front of us. It seemed like he laid up or let up at maybe the 15-yard line or so. But the problem is, and it's not just Ratliff Williams, but like Larry Fedora said, he's not getting help. These guys aren't challenging for the ball as much as I think they should when the plays are actually there. Your take on that before I get y'all's thoughts on the defense. Well, it, to me, again, it's kind of like the uh, the what you said about the offensive, or actually, I guess Deem said about the offensive line. It's almost like every other opportunity, they really fight and go up and get the ball. I mean, you think about, actually, there's a great example of this from the last game, right? Anthony Ratliff-Williams against Notre Dame. Surratt throws kind of a wounded quail up there because he got plastered by by the Notre Dame pass rush which uh you know got let through this is one where you know the off- it was one of the offensive lines plays off uh where uh where the you know got a guy that just g- goes right right between two offensive linemen who don't notice apparently that uh and then they you know he gets he gets put on his back but but recognizes that he's got a one-on-one matchup on a on a corner blitz throws it up there, Ratliff-Williams gets over top, comes back and kind of doesn't really focus and drops the football. Oh, wow. Well, two plays later, all of a sudden they come back to the same play. Ratliff-Williams goes up and makes a strong catch for a touchdown in the end zone, goes up and competes for it. Well, you know, he didn't get it on the one, but he got it on the other. And that's, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a lot of that. And... And a lot of that's youth. I mean, when you get that kind of inconsistent play on, play off, a lot of times that's just guys who haven't learned to compete play in, play out. And that's something that does tend to happen. You, you've you've got to learn to do that at that level of consistency, or at least most guys do when, when they get in college. And these guys haven't gotten there yet. But I do think that, you know, the, the, the big lesson is – it's not, it, you know, you got a lot of a lot of fans over the last few weeks that have, you know, been blaming the quarterback on different things, and I think, if nothing else, this game confirms that it's not just the quarterback. People, it's not, you know, it's it, actually the quarterback is oftentimes the least of the concerns. The quarterback gets too much blame and too much too much credit a lot of times, and in this case, that's that's what's going on. And again beware when you're begging for the next guy because it, it, you know usually just 
changing out one guy isn't going to fix everything. And, you know, unless you're talking about a Trubisky or some superstar who could come in and potentially uh, change things just by, by being on, on, on a different level. But, but again, it's all the guys around the quarterback and it's not one problem. If it was one problem, that's easy. You can start to at least work around it if you can't fix it. The problem is you've got multiple problems that intermittently surface and that that's really hard to coach around impossible to coach around really when we come back from break we'll talk about the defense and i'll ask buck and jason their thoughts on the performance of those guys yesterday against virginia some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing renault don't do ors we do ands the Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Look, I thought the defense was in position pretty much the entire game. But like I said to you off the air, I felt like they just got, A, worn down, which is you play 40 minutes in a football game, that's going to happen. Then they can't really help that. But I also thought there were times where they were in position to make plays and just couldn't get them made. Your take on how they played. Well, you know, I think probably a defense that's taken the field in college football this year there are times you could say the same things. The problem is that in this last game, North Carolina had to do it twice as often as Virginia did. North Carolina only had the ball for 20 minutes in the 60-minute game. So you're going to have a whole lot more opportunities to screw up if you're on the field twice as long as the other defense. Yeah, I think there are times when were there and and even made big hits. They they made strong, hard hits, but failed to wrap up. And the Virginia Virginia uh, offensive player, and that Jordan Ellis is a strong kid. Uh, they were able to keep their feet and keep moving forward. So you know, I saw some really hard licks by the UNC uh, defense multiple times. But even after they make that hit, they fail to get the guy on the ground. So I think that's a problem. I think, and I, if you look at some of the guys yesterday that I thought played very well or showed a lot of promise, Tamon Fox had his best game. Um, I think Miles Warfolk played very, very well. I thought KJ Sales played well for the most part. Aaron Crawford, I think, had a sack. So. You know, it's hard to say really what exactly the problem is, but I think primarily they're just on the field too often. Jason, your take? I mean, I saw a lot of good good things. I also saw a lot of guys laying licks, just not even thinking about wrapping up. I um, mean, Virginia made them pay for that. I saw guys get run over. I, I'll chalk that up to being worn out. But I think the the licks without the wraps is one thing that's maddening to watch. Your take on that, and just briefly describe how that's taught. I mean, Papuchas and his staff gets them in the correct spot for the most part. What's the 
the next step for that coaching slash teaching to get those plays made in your opinion well the old old rule or the the thing you'll hear player after player say if you ask this question is you can teach them to be in the right place you can teach them to take the proper angles you can go through form tackle drills or whatever but ultimately assignments can be taught getting a guy on the ground can't be taught that's on the player and you know, you, you and, and yes, you can you can teach tackling to a certain degree. That's about angles, making sure that, you know, guys are fundamentally sound and OK, you know, put your head here, make sure you ra- you do all that. But especially in today's game with how so much emphasis is on making sure guys aren't taking a beating every day in practice. You don't you, you don't get much time to to spend taking guys to the ground all the time. And you just have to have guys that that commit to getting guys on the ground, and that's something that that that's a mentality. It's an attitude, more than anything else. And I agree with Buck. The defense got tired. Uh, you could really see it in the fourth quarter. That defense got tired again, and it's not because you know it's not like they got fewer possessions or anything on offense. It's just that Carolina was boom or bust. They either got a long run the score or they you know, made a couple big plays and, and, and drove down or they went three and out or, you know, six and out, whatever. They, they didn't run a whole lot of plays on drives that weren't successful. Uh, and even on the drives that were successful, they didn't run a whole lot of plays. So the defense was out there longer. They got tired. But the thing is, you saw some really bad missed tackles on the first drive. And that's something that, again, that's, that's a factor where you've got you've got to commit as a defense to get guys on the ground. Some of it is is perhaps a little bit of size at linebacker right now, uh, you know, with a couple guys. But you know they've got the personnel to be able to get guys on the ground. They they've got the they they're trained to take the angles that they need to to get them on the ground. That's just on guys to make sure that they do get them on the ground. Buck, your take on the defense? I know you thought Case and Collins, and I agree, just continues to do things at linebacker that Carolina hadn't seen from him since he arrived on campus. Yeah, it's like three three games ago, the light bulb went off for him. I think maybe the first game after they lost Andre Smith for the year, he's always had a lot of ability. Uh, there, there's no question about that. Even as we saw him play as a true freshman, and, you know, he was doing things even then that not many linebackers at UNC were capable of doing. But then he would go through stretches where he would be hesitant or uncertain or play like he didn't really know where to be and when. And and so it was that inconsistency that was maddening to fans and I'm sure to his coaches as well when you've got a guy that, you know, can make plays but yet there's he goes long stretches without making a play but these last three games it seems like he's put it all together and he he's becoming the player now that they hoped he would be after his freshman year i think he may have started like the last three or four games or something like that of his true freshman year so it's puzzling that it's taken him this long to put it all together but at the same time, he, he's, he's on his third linebacker coach and his third defensive coordinator, and he's only been here four years. Uh, 
But uh, the same could be said of, you know, other players as well, like MJ Stewart. You know, it's good to see him finally put it together the way he has over these last three games. Jason, last question, and I don't know if you can answer it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How does the coaching staff decide um, when they're putting their defense together? How do how do they decide, you know, who goes in at field corner, who plays the boundary corner, and, and those type decisions? Because uh, as I watch, it, I feel like watching Carolina's defense, if Carolina can get adequate or better than adequate help opposite MJ Stewart, that defense would get even even better, um, even this season. But clearly, there's not a lot of options out there. So how are those decisions made on which corner pl- takes which side of the field usually? Well, some of it, ha- I mean, some of it has to do with traits, and then some of it has to do with grades in practice uh, and in games. So the number one thing is the grades thing, where if you've got an established corner, like MJ Stewart, who you know is is your best guy. I mean, he's your best player. Then he's going to be on the field at one of them. And then you're going to take the guy that is the next best corner on your team, and you're going to put him out there opposite him. That's pretty simple. And you you do that by grades, who's getting the job done in practice, who's getting the job done in games. And you try to do it as objectively as possible. You know, every play in practice is going to get graded on, you know, and depending on how the, how the, uh, the scale goes, you know, you'll get, number values though out of those grades i mean so for example the 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 scale that i use is a zero one two three zeros you missed your assignment or you loafed or you just totally blew something one is it was you you did the right thing but you did it with bad technique or you, you you did it poorly and then two is you did your job and three is you did your job beyond expectation or you made a play right so then what you do is you compile those grades, you find out what the person's average uh, per play is, find out what the, the, the percentage of times that they get a two or above, and that's their, that's their percentage grade. You do all that stuff to figure out who your, your next guy is, right? So that's the guy that deserves to play. That's the guy that's earned it. That's one thing. But the other thing that's a factor is you have to, in order to determine who's going to be on field side and and, uh, who's going to be on boundary side and all that, some of it also has to do with traits. So usually teams want their more physical, longer corner on the boundary side, if possible, because you're going to get teams that that are going to, that guy has to do a little bit more one-on-one stuff. He's going to get challenged over the top a little bit more. You know, he's going to have to provide run support more than say the field corner will who usually has a safety inside him or a nickel inside him to provide run support so your more physical guy usually needs to be on the boundary side as well so you can usually have your twitchier guy if 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 you're going to make that distinction you're going to have your twitchier your more jitterbuggy type player if you if you've got a big guy normally he's going to go boundary side the twitchy guy is going to go field side more often so then you strike that balance and you figure out who's going to go where. So if you're going to play in this current with this current group, let's say Renee and Renee was back out there this week. If Renee's one of your options, he's more of a prototypical boundary body. So you might put him in there, but if MJ is that much better than you might, and he's, he's thick enough to play that. I mean, he plays in the, in the, that nickel role, which is, you know, kind of a hybrid linebacker sometimes the way that they play that. 
then you say, okay, well, fine, we're going to keep him at boundary and we'll have Renee stay at, at, at field. But if it's anybody other than MJ that's at that boundary or that, that that's on the field opposite Renee, Renee's probably going to be at boundary just because of the, the traits that he has in terms of size and physicality. So it's a little bit of a balance overall. Interesting take. Look forward to your video breakdowns during the week for Inside Carolina Buck. Look forward to your columns. They're always good. Um, but I'm going to wrap this one, our Sunday podcast. Carolina falls to Virginia 20-14 to 14 in Keenan Stadium, 0-5 in Keenan Stadium this year. That is, that is rough. Guys, appreciate you joining me. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.